0: How y'all doing? Good. It's so good to see the kids in here worshiping with us. I like that addition to it. And if you don't know why we're doing that, it just thinks it's a good thing for kids to grow up seeing their parents worship God and singing those songs with them. And sometimes when we have them separated the whole time, they never get to witness their parents singing and enjoying and doing that as a family. So that's one of the adjustments that we've made. And that's why we're doing it, because we want to encourage that influence that parents have on their kids. So I think that's a really cool thing. So to see how many of them are in here is also a good thing. It reminds us how many kids we got out there and what a responsibility we've been given as a church to steward that gift that God has given and entrusted to us. We are in Habakkuk, and I actually want to go back to uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 and pick back up with it again because I believe that it helps us to lead into the rest of this. Now, um, in verse 1 is where Habakkuk kind of, after he has made his second complaint to God and complaint maybe not be the best word, uh, his question, his um, admission to not understanding exactly what God was up to or what God was doing, maybe even his admission to thinking that from his perspective, God hasn't been doing anything. Um, he's been idly standing idly by as Israel has um, had all kinds of injustices that have happened within their borders. So the whole book starts off with Habakkuk kind of focused on his own people going, God, These people are so wicked, and they are intolerant of the covenant and your ways. God, aren't you going to judge them? And God goes, Oh, you won't believe the plan that I have. It's it's awesome. You're going to love this. I'm actually raising up the Babylonians now to come in and judge the people. Absolutely, that's you're exactly right. Which led to Habakkuk's second complaint of, Oh, wait a minute. I mean, I agree. Uh, that's where I started. Yes, they need to be judged. But wait a minute, God. You're going to use the Babylonians to judge the people? And, and, and there, there's, God, there's a difference there. Do you not know how bad and how wicked the Babylonians are? They, they devastate cultures that they take over. They kill everybody there. They take women and children and men prisoners and make them their slaves. And anybody who's not strong enough to work, they just kill them. They leave people to starve to death. I know that our people need to be judged, but how are you going to use them to judge our people? And it's almost like his his whole doubt of God has changed to a whole different kind of doubt. Like the first time he was just doubting God's involvement, that God was standing idly by while Israel was just being so blatantly rebellious to the covenant. Now he's doubting, God, are you even good? Because how in the world could you use that? Are you just? Because how could you use those people? Now, again, I don't think that the tone of Habakkuk is one of calling God into question. I think it is an admission of, God, I don't understand this. I need you to reveal to me your truth, which is the beauty of verse 1. And let's read it again. I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on the tablet, so he may he who runs may read it. For still the vision waits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. So he starts off this whole thing with being this watchman on the wall. Of course, we've talked about it before, but the watchman was the one who stood on the wall. It was his responsibility to warn anybody of impending danger. As a matter of fact, this role was so important in ancient Israel that if a person fell asleep on the wall and the enemy came through, the blood of anyone that that enemy killed was on the hands of that watchman. He would be stoned to death because of not holding up his end of what his responsibility was. So for Habakkuk to say, I'm going to take my position on the wall is really a picture of how he sees his role as a prophet. I don't think he was physically going to take his position on the wall. I think he was saying, as prophet, you've called me to do this, and I have a responsibility to speak the truth and to warn the people of invading enemies. And I thought the enemy was from within, but now you're telling me the enemy is coming from without as well. And so I need to hear from you. I need to know what it is that I'm supposed to be proclaiming to the people. Is there any way for them to avert this danger? Is there any way for them to get past this or prevent this from happening? What is my message that I need to proclaim to my generation? I think the image of the watchman on the wall is very indicative of our responsibility today as Christians. Remember, when Christ called us, the great commission as he ascended into heaven was that we are to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. I want to remind you, the gospel has two components. Number one, judgment is coming. Judgment of God is going to be poured out on sin wherever sin is found. The good news is Jesus Christ provided a way for you to escape the judgment of God. But the good news doesn't make sense if there's not bad news. And I think a lot of times in our American culture, especially within the church in the American culture, we focus so much on the good news being forgiveness and being heaven and being the rewards that we have that we forget that there was bad news that made the good news necessary. And that bad news is still prevalent. Matter of fact, it is the message that we've been handed as followers of Jesus to proclaim to the world, there is a day of judgment coming. And it is getting faster and faster in its approach to us today. And if we take seriously our call to be watchmen on the wall, then we have to be the prophets to the world around us. You say, well, that message really isn't all that popular in our culture. Welcome to the life of a prophet, okay? If you go into the Old Testament, you find out that Isaiah and Jeremiah, no one ever listened to them. Matter of fact, both of them were probably drug out. They were um, beaten. They were like, within a, an inch of their lives. People wanted them dead. Uh, over and over again, they were cast out. They were set aside. They weren't taken seriously. They were hated. Why? Because they had a message that God was going to bring judgment if the people didn't repent and turn back to him. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to get bullhorns and go to the corner of university and airport and just start yelling things at people as they drive by, but I do think it is serious for us to take into consideration where has God placed you and who has he given you influence with that you need to be relaying that message to them. It could be your neighborhood, it could be your own family, it could be um, the, the place that you work, it could be the school that you go to. I don't know where that influence is, But as you go, you need to take the message of both the gospel that Jesus Christ can be um, the forgiver of sins for us, can mitigate us of our uh, consequence of sin, the eternal consequence that we don't have to experience eternal death, that we can be forgiven, that we can have the promise of heaven. But the other side of that is if we refuse that, there is a judgment day that awaits and is fast approaching When the wrath of God will be poured out on all sin, wherever sin is found. So again, I think there's so much to this that we have to make application to our own day. We're not just studying uh, something that happened a long time ago. We're studying something that God gave to us because it is current for our day and our time. I'm not sure if Habakkuk knew exactly how the Lord was going to respond to him in his second complaint. I don't know if he was standing there fearful of God's response. I don't know if he was just anxious, wondering what God would say or anticipating that. Uh, I don't think he was prideful, but there could have been an element of pride where he was thinking, well, I just presented a really good case to God. I'll see how he answers that. I don't get that from that, but I don't really know exactly what he was expecting. But verse three tells us very clearly that he waited. He waited. Man, it's always a good thing to wait on God. It's always a good thing when you've presented a request to the Lord in prayer to wait on Him. But you know, waiting can be a very difficult thing for us to do. Matter of fact, it was a theologian, St. Thomas the Petty, who said the waiting is the hardest part. And so, uh, some of y'all will get that later. But anyway, uh, the whole point of it is when we pray, a lot of times, how many of y'all know somebody who when they end their prayer says... In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You ever heard that? I don't know how you spell that exactly, but a lot of people love to end their prayers that way. And immediately when they say that, they open their eyes and they go about their business. We in our American culture have lost the art of meditation. Uh, And again, I know some people get freaked out by meditation. It's, it's, It's in scripture. It calls us to it. Be still and know that I am God. What does that mean? It's talking about meditating on the word of God. The scripture says, meditate on the word of God day and night. So it's not like this, this, this seance that we're having is taking something that is so vital to our existence and our understanding that we see it that way, that we treat it that way, that we give reverence to it, that we stop and we remove the distractions and we keep reminding ourselves of these truths. We say them to ourselves over and over again. We think about every word and the relationship of that word to the rest of the words in that sentence or that verse, and we contemplate what it means for us, and we wait to hear from the Lord. It's exactly what the prophet does in this passage. He presents his case, tells God what he doesn't understand, and then he waits to hear from the Lord. I don't know how many of you have something going on in your life that is happening right now that you don't understand. And maybe in your prayer time, uh, and I don't know what your prayer time looks like. Your prayer time might be this time you set aside in the morning. It may be as you're driving down the road. I don't know what it looks like. But maybe in your prayer time, you've presented this case to God. Lord, I don't understand this. This is what's happening. Here's what I see. Here's what I want you to do. But you haven't done this. Lord, why? What's going on? In those moments, you have to wait to hear From the Lord, God in his grace provided Habakkuk with an answer. He provided him with a vision, and this vision radically changed Habakkuk's perspective and his attitude as well as his outlook on the whole situation. His vision really becomes the focus of these next couple of chapters, all of chapter 2 and a good part of chapter 3. As Habakkuk has journeyed through this process, he's gained an incredible change in attitude, He's gained an incredible change in his outlook on the situation that he sees. He started this whole process, when you go back to chapter one, confused, bewildered, downcast, doubting. God, I'm not sure that you're good. I can't see your goodness in this. Lord, it seems like you're sitting idly by and you're letting wickedness just run rampant. I don't understand. And yet, by the end of this, he becomes hopeful, he becomes emboldened, he becomes worshipful, and he becomes faithful to the calling on his life. Why? What happened between the first part and the second part? Is it that God answered his question? No, not fully. I mean, God gave him some answers, but not all the answers that he wanted. But what happened was he heard from the Lord and God answered enough that he knew how to proceed forward from that day forward, going through the difficult circumstances of his life. How about you today? Are there any situations in your life where you find yourself in the initial position that Habakkuk found himself in? Bewildered, confused, downcast, doubting God, doubting some aspect of God's character. Don't you want to be hopeful? Make that transition to be emboldened in your faith, worshipful in your relationship with God, and faithful to the calling that God has put on your life? What are those situations in life where you find yourself wanting to hear from God? Hey, you know what the advice is from the text? Wait. Wait patiently on the Lord. Listen. Spend time in silence and solitude. Let his word speak To your heart. How did he get to that second perspective? How do we get to that second perspective? Two things that we see in the text. He beheld the glory of God, and he believed the word of God. We find that as we go through. We're not gonna have time to get to those verses today, but you're gonna see that in in next week when we get to the rest of these verses that he beheld the glory of God. God allowed him to behold his glory, and God gave him his word, and he believed in the word of God. So he believed it. I love how one author stated it. He said, when you behold the glory of God and you believe the word of God, it gives you faith to accept the will of God. You know, the will of God is hard to accept for some of us because it's not what we would will for our own lives. But to be able to accept the will of God for your life when it's difficult for you to understand, the way that you proceed with that is seeing the glory of God and believing the word of God and walking in faith in those things. Look at verse two of chapter two. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. So God told Habakkuk two things right here. Number one, write this down. Okay. Number two, make it plain. First of all, he said to write it down. Why did he tell him to write it down? To make it available. Two reasons, number one, to make it available to show everyone that what the prophet said came true. Everything that he said was going to happen happened exactly the way that he said it was. This is to validate that this was a prophet of God and that his prophecy was from the Lord. These were the very words of the Lord that he was sharing with the people. Write it down so it can be confirmed later. But there's a second reason for writing it down and that is this, because it's not just a message for that generation. This is a message, Habakkuk, for every generation that will ever follow in humanity, including ours. The reason it's written down and included in our copy of Scripture is because this is a message as much for us today as it was for the people in the day of Habakkuk. We need to embrace the truth and the application of this passage. Uh, the writers of the New Testament did. Hundreds of years removed from Habakkuk, they included passages from Habakkuk as they addressed the people of their day and time. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, for yet a little while and the coming one who will come and will not delay. That's an exact quote there from the, the verses that we just read here in Habakkuk chapter 2. So he's making application to it, like God's judgment is coming and it will not delay. It may not come in your time, but it's gonna come perfectly in the time of God. So not only was he to write it down, the second thing he says is to make it plain. God wanted them to know exactly what was coming. He didn't want it to be hidden. He didn't want it to be mysterious. He didn't want it to be in in a parable or a riddle. He said, make it very clear so that anyone who reads it knows to run because the wrath of God is coming. I want it to be plain as day that anybody who walks by and reads it, there's no confusion about it. It lets them know exactly what is coming. See, today we don't need to get caught up in all the endless debates of how God's judgment is going to be visited on sin. But what we need to focus on is the clear and sobering message that it is coming. And it is just a matter of time. God is never late. He never delays. His response is always perfect. And it's always right on time, according to his calendar. And that is the message that we have. God will not Delay, He will answer and he will do the things that he said he will do. Now, I wanna look at the contrast that's presented to us in verse four because I think this is really the meat and the crux of this whole book. I think the whole book pivots right here at verse four. Behold, his soul, and talking about his soul is the one that's the wicked one, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But, now we're talking about a different person, the righteous shall live by his faith. So it gives us a comparison of two different people here. One of them is arrogant, one of them is proud, one of them is is puffed up, and because of this, their soul is not upright within them. And then he contrasts that with the righteous, and the righteous live by faith. So what we have here is a comparison of arrogance and righteousness, or another way of looking at it is a comparison of pride and faith. And it is clear that, for Habakkuk at least, the prideful were the Babylonians. That's who he understood them to be. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was prideful. He was arrogant. These were very prideful people. They were arrogant. They were the puffed-up ones. They thought that they were the ones that had all the power, They were the ones that they thought they achieved great things by that power, by their might, by their ability. Let's not forget what King Nebuchadnezzar faithfully said from his rooftop of his abode. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. And the king answered and said, "'Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty?' Now, again, I want you to remember that King Nebuchadnezzar says that from his rooftop, and immediately when he says this and reveals his heart, God tells his prophet to go tell him, I'm about to bring you low. And there was a time for years that King Nebuchadnezzar had to run around like a wild animal out in the woods, in the forest, long fingernails, long unkept hair because God brought him low because of the display of his arrogance and thinking he did all of this. This isn't just the pride of the Babylonians, though. This is a picture of any sinner who is eat up with pride. This is such a strong picture of our culture today. It's what eats away at the integrity of our culture. I wanna remind you that in our culture today, we call this Pride Month. I wanna remind you that the scripture says pride goes before destruction. Now, I am not here to say that any sin in our culture is worse than any other sin, but what I am saying is there's some things you can look for in the culture when you know that sin is culminating to an apex and that the whole culture has eroded. And when that happens, you know destruction is not far away. You can look at our American culture and you can just look at the polls that have been taken through the years. Go back to the 30s and see what people thought was sin and what people didn't think was sin. And then go to the 50s. And then go to the 70s and late 60s, early 70s with the revolution that happened there. Then go into the 80s and the 90s and the introduction of the internet and all the technology that began to invade our culture. And then follow it into our day and time. And what you'll find is you just go back 30, 50 years and what we used to call sin, we now are proud of. What we used to say was great and a great way to live now we should say you, are, you should be embarrassed if you hold those values. Do you see how fast things change? Why? Because of pride. Pride erodes a culture. It was the warning that Habakkuk was given as an explanation of what was happening to Israel. It was what he was told to expect that was gonna happen with Babylon. You know why? Because God is consistent. He always warns us of what will hurt us And guess what? It always hurts a culture when pride rules and reigns. You think you're better than someone else? You're about to be brought low. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know who it is that's your antagonist in your life. But let me tell you something. You better not become arrogant. You better not become prideful. You better not think that you're better than anyone else that you may have conflict with. Why? Because pride begins to eat away at your heart, at your soul. And before long, judgment is visited on that person. Now, again, all of this can be put aside by coming in faith to God through Jesus Christ. But to come to God through Jesus Christ, it takes what? Not pride, but humility, humility. You have to humble yourself. You have to admit that you need a savior. You have to admit that you're a sinner and that you've committed sin and that you need forgiveness of that sin. You have to agree with God that this wasn't the best way to live and that his way is the right way to live. And in that humility, you can pursue truth. Let's not forget what we learned from the apostle John in our study of his pastoral letter. First John chapter two, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. You see the warning that John presents to the church of his day and time. And again, he wrote it down because it's just as applicable to our day and time. It's a warning that there's two ways to live. You can live the world's way or you can live God's way. But to live either one of those ways, you have to embrace a set of standards that you believe, that you hold as true. And if you pursue the world's way, you have to embrace their standards. But if you pursue God's way, you have to embrace his standards, and they are at opposition with one another. Look, let's look at the next part of verse four in our text. Behold, his soul is puffed up. Look at the second part. It is not right within him. So besides being puffed up, pride also causes the soul of a person not to be upright. It becomes upside down, or it becomes twisted is another way of thinking about it. I think this is speaking to the inward appetites of that haughty and prideful heart. It longs to fill our fleshly appetites. But since nothing in this world can completely do that, it becomes more and more twisted, more and more upside down, even for them. Think about this. What the scripture points to is that when pride rules in our life, we say no to God and we say yes to the world's standards and pursuits. But the problem is we've all been created with this appetite, this desire to go deeper and deeper, to be fulfilled at a deeper level. And what happens is when we begin to pursue those things of this life, they can't answer that to a deeper level. There's only one thing that can, and that is God, because he's endless. He's infinite in every aspect of his character. So no matter how much of his grace you experience, you haven't experienced the depth of it. There's still another high that you can hit with God. There's another high that you can hit with his knowledge, with his power, with his grace, with his mercy, with his justice, because he's unending. And that's what that inside of each human desires for something that gets deeper and deeper the further you go. But what happens is when we take our attention off of God and put it on the things of this life, we try and answer that appetite with things that can't fulfill it. And so what happens is we aspire to go higher and higher and experience this high. But what we actually do is bring ourselves lower and lower and lower. Thus the addictions that are a part of our culture. The addiction basically is just a sin that is unchecked for so many of us. I mean, it is pursuing Something that was gratifying at some moment, but yet it's not gratifying anymore. So we have to go deeper. Or in the sense of maybe sexuality, it gets more twisted or more dark because what used to satisfy doesn't satisfy anymore. Why? Because the things of this world were never meant to continue to satisfy us. The only thing that can satisfy us is a relationship with God. It's the only thing that has no end to its depth. It's the only thing that is infinite in every aspect of its being. God is the one who can satisfy the desires of our hearts. Think about this. I love how one author said it. They have to convince themselves that something they once thought was wrong is now right. That's what happens when pride rules in your heart. You go back to our, just our history in American culture Think about what was wrong and right in the 30s and 40s and 50s and even 60s and 70s. And then you look at what is called right and wrong today and they're almost antithesis of each other. They're almost the exact opposite. Why? Because to continue to pursue the desires of the flesh, you have to convince yourself that what you used to think was wrong is right and what you used to think was right is wrong. It's the only way that you can continue down that path. The point that the prophet conveys here is that what God hates, the proud love. He goes on in this passage. He gives us a list of five woes that God condemns. And these really, if you go read them, we're going to get to them next week. But if you go and read them, I encourage you to do it this afternoon. Go look at each one of them. The, the verse will start with woe to, and then it'll continue on why there's a woe to that group of people. And, and, and the whole point of it is, it's a picture of the fallen heart. It's a picture of fallen humanity. And the point again, that Habakkuk is conveying to us is the degradation that happens in human culture when we take our eyes off of God. Listen to how Peter describes what we have been saved from as Christians. In verse 4 of 2 Peter chapter 1, towards the end of that passage, it says, Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. One of the things that we've been saved from is corruption. Where did that corruption come from? It came from the world. Why did we experience it? Because of sinful desires. We had these desires that went unchecked. We fulfilled them through the world standard, and it led to corruption. Have you ever noticed that the things that are the most egregious in rebellion against God are actually pictures of insatiable appetites? Now, again, there's not any sin that's any worse than any other sin when it comes to offending a holy God. All sin separates us from God, but when you begin to look at sin itself and the consequences and the devastation that a sin can visit on a person or a family or a culture, there are definitely sins that rank higher than other ones. As a matter of fact, that's why we have a list of deadly sins in the scripture, because when these become apparent in a culture, you know that the end of that culture or the, the um, degradation of that culture is beginning, Right? And so if you think about the worst sins that we experience as a culture, if you think about it, every one of them is a picture of an insatiable appetite. It's wanting more and more of something not being fulfilled, so it goes further and turning things upside down or becoming even more and more twisted. Now, we're saving verse 5 for next week, but it does go on and tell us that pride is is what makes people unsatisfied. Let's just look at it for a moment as an introduction to where we'll go next week. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shield. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. Now, again, we're not going to go full into this, but I want you to notice a couple of things here. Notice the things that he lists. Number one, never at rest. Number two, never has enough. Number three, gathers more and more and more, usually at the expense of others. I could argue that this is our American culture. This is what we have become. We are never at rest, and we're not satisfied with resting. We never have enough. I've referenced before in sermons in the past, one of the recent studies, that they went and looked at the different um, segments of the population, the socioeconomic uh, populations, and they asked people in the lower end, and the middle part of it, and the higher end, they said to them, how much money do you make now, and how much do you think you need to be comfortable, to be satisfied. And the people who made 30000 said they needed 60000 The people who made 100000 said they needed 200000 And the people who made 500000 said if they just had a million dollars a year, then they would be satisfied. What does that tell you? It doesn't matter how much you have, you think you need double that to be satisfied. And guess what? When you get double that, you're gonna think all I need is double that and then I'll be satisfied. Why? Because our appetite is never satisfied. It's like the indulgence of wine. It's like seeking experiences, new experiences, to thrill us, to make me feel more alive again because the last one just doesn't do it for me anymore. This was the heart of the Babylonians. This has been the tale of human history, and this is the experience of our American culture now. Now, as bad as that seems, I don't want to end on doom and gloom. I want us to end on the positive aspect of this, and that is the last part of verse 4, which is the contrast that the prophet gives to pride. Look at the last part of verse 4. Let's read the whole thing in context. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, this verse is quoted at least three times in the New Testament. Let me show you. Romans 1, 17 Paul says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. A direct quote from the prophet here. Galatians chapter three, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. A direct quote from the prophet here. Hebrews 10, 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So again, what is this calling us to? That there's something about what makes us right before God has nothing to do with our religiosity, has nothing to do with our actions, has nothing to do with what we do. It has something to do with what we have taken hold of, what we believe, what we have faith in. If you think about it, this really is the turning point of the book of Habakkuk especially for the prophet himself. We talked about that before. As he starts it, he's in this condition. As you continue from this point on, his condition changes, and he goes from doubting to celebrating, to honoring, to reveling in the glory of God. This is the first of three assurances that God gives to the prophet in the chapter. This one right here is is God's grace demonstrated through faith. The second thing he's gonna see is God's glory one day is gonna fill the earth. And that is a assurance that he gives to him, like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to accomplish these things. I'm gonna be faithful to this. The third thing he tells them in this chapter is that God will rule the nations and he will bring true peace to earth. Nations come and nations go, but God will remain on his throne forever. This simple phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, is so profound, it was the turning point for Martin Luther when he was reading the book of Romans. He says of it, and I quote, this text was to me the true gate of paradise. It's when he realized that it wasn't his efforts to be righteous that made him right before God. It was the righteousness of Christ that he took hold of by faith. Justification comes through faith alone. Just listen to the divine direction in these verses. Galatians 2.19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Galatians 2, 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, he's pointing us towards how we find victory in our lives, how we find that fulfillment that we're all looking for. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Isn't that a great truth that you can hold on to? Look at what he says. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Your faith is what overcomes the world. Your faith is what helps you overcome the circumstances of your life that you don't understand. And ultimately, from this point in the passage on, what God is telling the prophet is this. What got you this far, Habakkuk? Why are you still considering yourself my prophet before you didn't understand these things? What got you this far? Faith. Well, guess what? Faith is what's going to get you through the part that you don't understand. The same thing that got you here is the thing that's gonna get you through these difficult circumstances. So faith is the gateway to salvation through Jesus Christ, but it's also the victory that we live in In other words, faith isn't just this one momentary experience where we take hold of Christ. Ultimately, what these writers are saying is that faith is what gets us through daily difficulties. It's what we live. It's how we live in victory from day to day despite the circumstances of our life. You know, living by faith is the opposite of being prideful. Habakkuk didn't understand what God was doing, so he inquired of God. And you know what God reminded him? Hey, faith got you this far Why don't you just continue to trust me in faith when you don't understand? You see, it's easy to have faith in God when things are going smooth. It's easy to have faith in God when you can explain the circumstances of your life. When you walk through difficulty, though, and you begin to call into question the character of God, in other words, God, if you're loving, if you're powerful, if you're good, then why this? That's where faith becomes real, because you trust God despite the circumstances of your life faith is what gets you through things that you don't understand living by faith means putting God front and center not your circumstances that's the mistake that we make so often is we put our circumstances front and center and we go hey God come look at this when we should be putting God front and center and saying, hey circumstances come look at this but that's what we do wrong I've said this before, and I think this is very important to keep in mind, that you are either looking at God through the lens of your circumstances, or you're looking at your circumstances through the lens of God. And depending on which one of those you're doing is what's creating the results of your life. What I mean by that is this. If you're looking at God through your circumstances, you're saying, God, why? Why are you not providing? Why are you not good in this situation? Why are you not demonstrating your power? But when you reverse those two and you look at your circumstances through your relationship with God, you say, God, I can't wait to see how you show yourself in this. God, I can't wait to see your faithfulness in this. God, I can't wait to see how your character is is brought glory through this circumstance. You see, you don't call God into question. You anticipate and you wait for God to show himself strong on your behalf. You see the difference in those two? And it's all about what you make front and center, what you give your attention to. It has well been said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It's obeying in spite of consequence. Let that sink in for a moment. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It's obeying in spite of consequence. Faith says, I know it's not popular. I know that I'm not gonna be lauded for this, but I believe that this is what God has for me. And even though it's difficult to walk this path in the culture that I live in, despite the consequences, this is what I believe is true, and I have faith in God that he's going to show himself strong on my behalf. Some form or fashion or way. I don't know how it's going to be. I'm just going to trust him with that, and I'm going to walk in the way that I know is true. We have to learn to rest in God's faithfulness to us. That can only be attained by having faith in him. Let's pray together. God, thank you for a word that reminds us of how beautiful the gospel really is. The gospel is like that diamond in front of that black silk cloth. The wrath of God being the dark cloth. The diamond being the beautiful gospel. It is literally the wrath of God that makes the gospel so beautiful because that's what we deserve, but this is what we have received. Lord, may we truly embrace the beauty of your message. Lord, there's so many things in our culture and in our own lives that we don't understand. There are a lot of things that if we focus on what's happening politically or culturally, socially, or even in our own lives within our families, that we could call you into question because we don't understand. But Lord, I pray that our response would be to keep our eyes centered on you and to let you help us to see our circumstances. I pray that you would receive all the honor and the glory that is due to you through the salvation that you have offered to your people. And Lord, as we end our time together singing these songs, Lord, I pray that we would pay attention to the words. I pray that we would sing them from a grateful heart. I pray that we would sing them with a conviction of our soul, that we agree with these things and we cry out to you. This has to be the song of our heart, that you would keep us on the path of righteousness, that you would enliven a faith inside of us and that Holy Spirit, you would use us for your name's sake and for your glory. And we ask these things in the name that's above every name, Jesus Christ our Lord.